Welcome to Cooper Talk. I'm your host, Steve Cooper. And remember, I'm only as hip as my guest. Not to tell you something, people, today, today I started a, uh, a Facebook challenge. And what it is is, now you know during the debates, I tweet up a storm. But I've said to my friends, I personally am not going to post or mention by name either politician until the next debate. Once the next debate comes up, I'll be posting away like I always do. And they're all jokes and I love when people get offended because I've never even told anybody who I'm voting for. I mean, people just call you names. They don't even know who I'm voting for. And I am, I'm going to vote for Hillary, but they don't know, they don't know that. But I've decided I'm not going to post and I want to see if my friends follow up because I have so many creative comedy friends who, who when the debates are on, they just write the funniest stuff. But then as soon as the debates end, it just gets into this ugliness and, and I just, I can't take it. So I'm abstaining to I think the next debates, uh, the 16th or not. So I think a week from today, I'm not even sure. But anyway, so that's my Facebook challenge. So if you follow me on Facebook, you will not see any political posts. I might make a, a Ken Bone post or a Billy Bush post, but that's all I'm saying. Anyway, we have a great guest today. He's a, he's a writer, a journalist. I, I He's both. He's a journalist. He's a rock and roll journalist. He's a writer. And I found him because my friend Stuart Rosenthal was reading his book and said, hey, Coop, you should get this guy on your show. And I hit him up and he was kind enough to come on. My guest is Bob Mayer. How you doing, Bob? I'm good, Steve. Pal. Thanks for having me on. Hey, no problem. So now, have you noticed that? Like, with, the, with I mean, and you're a writer and I know, but you write music. Have you noticed like, just there's so much stuff being posted on social media about these politicians? It just gets sort of tired, don't you think? Yeah, it's pretty... The volume of everything, I think, on social media is, is becoming overwhelming if it isn't uh, past that already. So it's, you know, it's there's very few things that uh, I suppose that everybody uh, is interested in. I mean, you know, music is such a funny thing because everybody has their taste and their own little corner of the musical world, and some things just don't interest people. But when it comes to, I guess, food and sports and politics, almost everybody has an opinion. So I think that's partly why you see... Uh, such a such a volume of stuff on on social media. It's been crazy. Now you're you're uh, you're from LA originally, I believe. Yeah, I was raised out there uh, largely, and then kind of about high school age moved out to Arizona to Tucson, uh, and uh, so I'm sort of evenly split between California and Arizona, but but really uh, grew up out west. Now, when did your this love of music? Because you have to love something to write about it. When did your love of music and also your passion to write, and then it combined the two? Happened? Were you like a kid in when you were younger? Were you writing essays? You know, because I remember I wrote an essay, "How to Give a Wedgie," in, in like ninth grade, <laughs> and my teacher loved it. And his name was Doctor Dwyer, and he was so uh, encouraging. But how did you start this the love for music, and then your writing, and end up having a career where you've written for different uh, publications, and now you've written this book that people were raving about? Well, I think. You know, it's like a lot of things in your childhood. You sort of see, you have things that you're that you're into from an early age. And I think if if you're lucky enough to have a passion or a talent for something um, from 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 childhood, it's it, it's really the best thing. And for me, I didn't really have much talent for anything else. Uh, but writing kind of came to me pretty early. I remember even as a kid, maybe fifth or sixth grade, I'd written a book report, and the teacher's aide who was kind of grading it called me in the back and said, "Hey." Uh, did your dad help you with this? Which he actually hadn't, but I, you know, it's one of those things this person in authority kind of says, hey, did your dad help you with this? I thought, well, you know, I want my dad to look good. So I said, yeah, he, yeah, he did. And she said, well, 
I think he may have helped you too much, and you know, it's and she was sort of going on about how good this book report was, and that a you know a ten year old can't uh, can't comprehend and analyze and write like this, uh, and so you know she was basically accusing me of having my dad write the thing for me, which he hadn't. So I thought, well, out of that kind of weird, awkward experience, I, I took it that I had some kind of ability or or, or gift, and um, but I I sort of. Uh, like a lot of things, you, you you don't go to things directly. So I sort of bounced around. I was going to be maybe write about sports. Uh, I started my career very briefly in radio, um, and then really my my only intention ever in terms of being a writer or a music writer, there was one story that I wanted to do. Uh, at this point, I was kind of working in Phoenix, Arizona, and there had been a band uh, band that some people know called the Gin Blossoms. Um, that had a number of pop hits in the early 90s, but kind of prior to their big success, they were founded, and their lead guitarist and main songwriter was a guy named Doug Hopkins, and he uh, was kicked out of the band as they were making their major label debut, and shortly after, committed suicide. And, you know, he's, I still think, one of the only two people to have ever committed suicide while his records were on the charts, you know, a song that he had written. Um, and so I was really fascinated by his life. I had sort of had some encounters with him when I was going to college, and he was a larger-than-life character, and, and for many years nobody had written about him. So I wanted to do a story about him. It was coming up on the 50th anniversary of his death, and I so I did this kind of uh, look at his life uh, in a way and published it at the local Alt Weekly in Phoenix and got a lot of attention, got a lot of, I guess, acclaim, and uh, the person who was sort of hiring hired me to be the music critic at the paper, and you know, since then, that was 18 years ago. Uh, I've been I've been basically a working music critic at uh, different publications uh, since. Has music always played a part in your life? And also, sitting there and have you heard music that you said this is going to be good? I remember growing up near Philadelphia. We had, our big station was WMMR and we had WYSP. Oh sure. And, and I remember. I mean, because I'm 52, and I remember the first time I heard Joe Jackson, and I was like, holy crap! It just blew my socks off. And then. The station played it. I knew it. So this guy's going to be big, and then of course he went through his different phases, which I've loved all of them. But did you, were you someone who would recognize music that when when you were younger, like even before you started writing, did you recognize bands, and would you be attracted to bands, let's say, not everybody else was attracted to? Um, yeah, yes and no. You know, or, or coming up, what I kind of cut my teeth on really was oldies radio. I mean, I'm 41, uh, grew up kind of in the heart of the 80s in Southern California, and strangely enough. Um, there was a big AM station at the time that was kind of having a, a, a revival or resurgence in terms of the DJ personalities called KRLA. It was a big, had been a kind of top 40 station in the 50s and 60s. And, and by the 80s, it was it turned into an oldie station. So they would have like Wolfman Jack and the real Don Steele. These guys were the DJs uh, throughout the day and, and night. And uh, and they played a really fantastic and, and pretty deep selection of oldies. So that's what I cut my teeth on. I mean, you know, it was weird. I, I was a as a 10, 11 year old, I would call up the station and request songs and talk to Wolfman Jack. So the um, childhood and in, in out of time really in the eighties because of this great station. So I grew up on oldies and then I think I progressed uh, probably through my uncle who, who was a music fan. My folks didn't really listen to a whole lot of music. I mean, they liked a few things, but they weren't really passionate about music. And, um, and so through the oldies, I kind of uh, got hooked up with, I got into country music and blues and things like that at a pretty young age, and as those things go, you kind of work your way back. You know, it's if you like the Rolling Stones, you work your way back to the blues influences, and then you know you kind of keep going. So it's always this constant and perpetual thing of discovery. Um, and then about about that same time, I was 11 years old. I happened to be watching Saturday Night Live 
uh, and this was kind of in the doldrums of SNL around 85, 86, um, and, uh, and lo and behold, this band came on that was so loose and so rough and so ragged, unlike anything or anyone I'd heard at that time. And it turned out to be The Replacements, um, you know, the, the band that I've written this book about and devoted so much of my life to researching. Um, and, you know, that was just kind of dumb luck. And so I think what, what I connected with, and, and subsequently I would get into them and their music, but what I think I connected with was uh, the personality, the personality of the individuals and the personality of the band, something that struck me about them. I knew there was something different about them. And I think my musical discoveries, you know, from that point on were really kind of framed in that way, it wasn't just about the music, but you know, what are the personalities and, the, and what are these people making the music like? And so I think that's what ultimately drove my interest in becoming a music writer. I, I think some music writers are really, they're music reviewers, they're really about records and breaking down records and, and putting them in context and that kind of stuff. I was really more interested in the people making the music and, and, uh, and what their lives were like that sort of created the art. So I think I, I come at it from that perspective, which is why you know, this book and this subject was really rich because uh, there's a lot of life inside of, of this band's story. Now, after you saw them on SNL, you said there were some other bands that you, and through your career, you were attracted to to write about because of the singers. And, you know, I remember, I'm still always pissed at myself because I missed a concert. I used to stand-up comedy in Philadelphia and on the road in the 80s and uh, early 90s. And there was a gig, and there's a place called the Man Music Center in Philadelphia. And the replacements opened up for Elvis Costello. And it's when Costello spun the wheel to see what he played. And that would have been such a great concert, but I was on the road and I was pissed I missed it. I always always (laughs) kick my ass for that. What were some of the other bands at that time that attracted, besides the replacements, who were you attracted to and why? Was it it the turbulence or or just what, what, what was it? Well, I mean, you know, I think on a certain level, you have to like the, like the music of anybody you're really into. But I, I think, yeah, certainly the kind of larger than life or, or bands that I think had characters, distinct characters within them. Certainly the Ramones, you know, a, a group like that, even though they sort of all look the same, I think they were distinct personalities individually. And so, you know, coming up, discovering the Ramones, which I think is probably a rite of passage for, for a lot of people, that was a big thing. Um, I was into actually Warren Zevon pretty early on, too, who was an L.A. guy. Um, singer-songwriter from the 70s and, and, of course, 80s until his passing in 2003. And he seemed like somebody who was very literate and very uh, larger than life in his own way. And I and I would quickly come to find out, you know, there, Paul Nelson, the great writer for Rolling Stone, had written an amazing story about um, Warren Zevon, who he was close with, and Warren Zevon's intervention being part of that when he sort of got sober. And so, you know, as I would discover music, I would uh, I would do the thing of reading and trying to find out about them. I'm kind of voracious when it comes to that sort of thing. And so the people I think I, I stuck with or got deeper into were the ones that had some kind of story. And often those stories were, were about conflict or addiction or, or, or difficulties in their lives that, that often came out in their music and their behavior. And so I think there's an interesting kind of through line in terms of the things I've always been attracted to and the things that I've I've written about and, and, and certainly in this book. I want to I want to talk about your career, but I want to talk about the book now. You said you saw when you saw him on SNL, you really yeah. got attracted to the replacements. So now, how do we get from that seeing of them on SNL to your the book being released? How did it all happen? And was it in your mind at what age or I mean? into your career did you say I need to write a book about these guys and then how do you get to set it up because I know I, I think people have said Westerberg is pretty much sort of a recluse yeah 
Well, you know, it, it's sort of uh, the, the proverbial uh, you know, lifetime in the making kind of scenario for me. I, uh, I, uh, I really, you know, it's, so I saw them in January of 86, uh, just as, as I say, a kind of one-off. I didn't realize who or what they were, uh, and I got into the music about a year later as a teenager. The record Pleased to Meet Me came out, which was their second major label album. And from that point on, I was a fan for, you know, a better part of a decade or, or more, uh, and then, as, of course, as my, I started my professional sort of uh, writing career, I had the opportunity to interview the guys in the band, Paul Westerberg, the singer-songwriter, and Tommy Stinson, the bass player and founding member, a couple times, you know, uh, uh, for their various solo or, or, or post-replacements band projects. So, you know, I, I, I came at them first as a fan and then as a, as a journalist. It really wasn't until, oh, about 2004 when I had the opportunity to interview Westerberg face-to-face for the first time in Minneapolis, the previous ones had just been kind of over the phone when he was promoting records or whatever, but I went to Minneapolis in the, in the uh, late summer of, of 2004 to interview him on an assignment for a magazine, and, and we sort of hit it off. He was at an interesting point in his life where, um, you know, he had, it was maybe just a few months removed from the death of his father, and he had a very young son, four or five years old, who was growing up that he was kind of... Uh, you know, being a house husband and dad too, and so I think he was, you know, in between those kind of two interesting, uh, you know, mi- milestone things, having a kid and, and losing a father. He was in a really unusually reflective and open mood, and as you know, he's not always been the most, um, you know, easy to deal with or, or open guy historically. But I found him at a, at a good moment, and we kind of hit it off. And so I thought, well, you know, maybe there's a way this guy isn't impenetrable, and this story isn't impenetrable if if he's going to kind of con- be as open as he was in this interview. So, um, you know, I, basically it took another couple years and a couple things to happen to where I thought, like, okay, I can really pitch this as a, as a project. And um, in that interim, I had come to know Peter Jesperson, who would be the replacement's longtime manager and the guy who kind of discovered them and signed them to their uh, first label, Twin Tone. And, um, and he's very close to Tommy Stinson. So, you know, he invited me over to dinner to, with Tommy to kind of discuss it. This time, Tommy was living in L.A. and playing with Guns N' Roses. And so, you know, I pitched him what I thought would be a good way of doing the book and why it was important. He, and he agreed. He said, I'll do it if Paul does it which I think was his way of getting out of doing it because Westerberg generally doesn't agree to do that sort of stuff. But a few months later, I was back in Minneapolis and back with Paul doing a story for uh, Spin Magazine on the replacements around the time that their catalog was being reissued. And, you know, we did the interview, and when the interview was over, he said, okay, let's talk about this book you want to do. And I think we managed to kind of come to an understanding as to what the book would need to be. And, and to my surprise and, 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 and relief, he was the one that said, you know, this is going to be a difficult book to write for you, and it's going to be, uh, at times, an unflattering book in terms of how it portrays us. And, 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 and I think he knew from the outset that I had a journey in store, but he said, if you're going to do it, you know, you got to tell it honestly. That's the only way to do it. And thus began a really a six, almost a seven, eight-year journey to uh, researching and writing and, and ultimately publishing this book. Now, how do you attack that researching? Because one thing is, you know, as he said up front, it's going to be unflattering. He, you know, the band had a, a reputation of being difficult. And now you have to write it. And you're actually, when you're writing it, you're sharing their story. And the bottom line is, you, it sounds like you could write whatever, you know, you would write. You, I and mean, then you were a fan, so you would be fair to them. But the bottom line is, they can still say, uh, no, that, that, I don't want that. Like, how do you deal with a temperament when you're actually you're dissect you're pretty much dissecting their lives? You know, it's like yeah. it's like you know, so you're you're going in there with some 
things stacked against you, but they told you that. So now where do you, where, where do you figure out how you can tackle that and then really get into the meat? Well, the important thing for me from the outset, and that was part of our discussions and, and, and our kind of uh, talks at the outset, and I felt like it was important to put a lot of the kind of uh, legwork or groundwork, you know, first, and that was that it was a book done kind of in an interesting way. I mean, usually you get, you get books that are either unauthorized and, you know, they're done without the band's involvement or they're authorized and the band has, uh, you know, approval over the contents. In my case, I had kind of the best of both worlds. It was done with their participation, but it was, you know, effectively unauthorized in that the control over the editorial content was mine. And, and I felt that was important because I didn't want them at the end of the process to be like, nah, I don't, I don't want to put that in. Uh, or can you take that out and that kind of thing? Because I felt like you know that that then I wouldn't be doing my job as a journalist in service to the reader and really telling the story. So I was lucky in that they basically agreed, no strings attached. We'll work with you. We'll give you access to who and what you need, but we won't interfere with the actual content. So with that in mind, it was a lot easier certainly for me to uh, you know talk to family, talk to friends, talk to co- colleagues, musical associates, uh, managers, producers, all that stuff, all the way down the line and and really build the book through a uh, multitude of perspectives. So it wasn't just the band's perspective, although it, it was also very important to me to tell their story from the inside, because I think, you know, the replacements have been written about, they've been the subject of other smaller books and, and chapters and, and certain books and were written about a lot during their, their career, but I think the, the view of the replacements was always one from the outside looking in. So I wanted to tell a kind of internal band story, but also one that was informed by... Um, the various perspectives of the people that work with them and were around them for those years. And so that's really how I tackled the research head on. It was, it was a lot of work I, and a lot of legwork. I did over 230 different interviews, or, or rather I should say I interviewed over 230 different people, um, in some cases just once or twice, in many cases multiple times, 10, 20 times when it came to some of the main, main people like, like Paul and Tommy. Um, and so I think through this mass of research that I developed over the years, I was able to kind of um, build, a, you know, it was like a giant piece of clay, and then I had to sort of chisel away and and really kind of structure, uh, uh, you know, the narrative and the story as I saw it, because uh, you can't include everything, and, and sometimes you sort of fall in love with your research and, and the work you did, and you feel like you have to show that, but it doesn't serve the tale. So it was kind of a that's the challenge. It's like I built this big pile of of, of material, and I had to chisel it into something that uh, you know readers could could uh, enjoy and be entertained by, but also feel and, 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 and kind of uh, be impacted by. Now, when you started out, and you know, as you said, you found, you know, how did you develop that list of people to get? And also, did you have a blueprint in plan? Or did you sit there and say, I got to do this, 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 and just roll how it goes? I mean, was, was it something where you were very, very, okay, this is how I'm doing it? Or were you something right. open? And did you know it would take these a long time that it would be a very long journey and probably a lot of changes for you in your life as you wrote that i mean you probably changed you you went from a different age you know you got older i I mean it's like it's like six or seven years when we're over 30 it's a long time we see a lot of crap go on our lives right right it's a big chunk of my life and 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 certainly far longer than i anticipated i mean when i sold the book in uh, May of 2009, I told my publisher, asked, you know, how long do you think it'll take? And I said, oh, I think it'll take a year to research and a year to write. So, you know, in two or three years, the book will be published. Well, it took closer to, to seven, obviously, <laughs> almost eight. 
And and some of that was because in, in the sort of latter stages, the band did reunite and did some performances and kind of went around for a couple of years. So we kind of wanted to wait till that, see how that process would reveal itself in terms of the timing. So there was a little bit of an unnatural delay because of that, but it sort of made sense. But frankly, the story just took a lot longer and it was kind of the proverbial onion. You know, I kept peeling layer after layer away and there was more to go. So um, that added to the, to the time. But also, you know, the, the story was complex. I mean, I was kind of writing a history from scratch. I mean, with some bands, there's a, there's a baseline, there's a kind of established framework for a story. But with the replacements, a lot of it was, you know, because of their, their, their wild and woolly reputation, a lot of it was kind of exaggerated anecdotes or legends or myths. So I didn't want to kind of rely on that, but I rather, I wanted to go in and kind of start from scratch and, and, and research and understand the history from, from, you know, from the beginning. And, and you know, that's a, that's a, that's a time-consuming effort, too. Um, and, and, you know, in the, in the process also I was working at my day job as a music critic at the Daily Paper in Memphis and so you know and, and doing various other things living life so it, it, it ended up taking longer than I expected but in terms of a plan you know I had I the only sort of plan I went in with was that I wanted to tell a kind of three-dimensional story that I didn't want to reduce the guys in this band to caricatures that I didn't want their story to be just a feel like a big exaggerated anecdote because I felt um, you know, instinctively, and also having come to know some of the guys even before I started, that there was a deeper and darker story to be told here, rather than just the sort of, uh, you know, fun, drunken mayhem, uh, beautiful loser myth that's been kind of perpetuated about the band, that there was something um, real and, and a kind of uh, Rosetta Stone for me, for me to find. Um, in terms of, of, of what the what the real story about this band, their formation and 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 the people involved was, and so you know you you make lists of the people you think you should talk to, and you you, you ask the people involved who who I should talk to, and it kind of and then you ask those people who I should talk to, and the rings just get bigger and bigger, and that's how you end up you know my original list was probably maybe 50, 75 people, and it ended up being you know five six times that in terms of who I ended up talking to, and it's like. One path leads to another, so you need to talk to this person and that person to sort of, uh, you know, get get the info on this tangent or this period of, of the band's history. And, and, you know, some of it you throw away, you don't use. A lot of it doesn't even make it into the book. But I think all of that research, that deep research, kind of informs um, a bigger understanding for an author and, and, and allows you to decide what's important, what to leave in, and what, 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 to, what to take out. So, you know, that's uh, in some ways the research might have been overkill, you know, if I, I could have done it in a more streamlined and efficient way, uh, but but I, I felt like, certainly for this book, which is also my first book, I wanted to just kind of, uh, you know, take it uh, as far as I could uh, in all those ways in terms of going through archives at, at the record company, listening to every bootleg and, and live show I could get my hands on, listening to the outtakes of the recordings, and, and you know, in, those, in, in putting together that patchwork and that puzzle or whatever, it's kind of like this mosaic you're building, and, and hopefully when you stand back from it and you look at it, it's, it, 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 it makes sense. Now, in the process, because, you know, I've been involved in interviewing people, and, you know, I interview a lot of different people from musicians to comics to whatever, you always hear different stories, you know, about, you know, especially with comedy, I went to a Robin Williams uh, thing at the comedy store. You know, stories about Robin, and some vary, and some are true. Like, oh, someone he had a club owner in the trunk. You know, this the, how people talk. Did you sure. get with all the people you interviewed? Did you um, they just get the two completely different stories about the same event? Where you go, holy crap! Who who's telling the truth? Right. Well, yeah, and particularly with the replacements when you're when you're talking about 
things that happened in dark rock clubs where people may have been drinking or doing other things, you know, and, and, and of course, it's all this stuff is 25, 30 years ago or more. Uh, memories can tend to become hazy or, or conflated or confused, and so you can get two or three or four people uh, talking about the exact same event that they witnessed with their own eyes and getting four completely different versions of it. So, um, you know, that's when that research really comes into play where you can go and check if there's a bootleg or a, li of a, or a recording of that particular show. You can hear, you know, what was being said or contemporary accounts uh, or reviews of, of a concert. That That's where that helps. And, and, you know, sometimes you can't ever really find the exact truth, so you have to use your best guess and and sort of take what makes the most sense from one person's version and the other person's version and what checks out against the recordings and what checks out against the contemporary accounts and, and kind of find some uh, some kind of subjective truth. Um, you know, uh, it didn't happen as much. I think I was lucky in that there was, you know, there was a lot of things that people had exaggerated and somebody would tell a story that, you know, I, I would very clearly be able to dismiss in terms of some of the specifics, but then there were some things and some of the wilder stories which turned out to be exactly accurate. So that kept me on my toes and, and forced me to, uh, you know, never, never sort of put my own kind of uh, prejudice or or, or, or sort of uh, preconceived notions into it, but rather to really kind of weigh and sift the evidence in, in terms of each incident or each episode or whatever. And 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 you know, I think for the most part, I, I got everything right. Uh, as much as there is any kind of subjective truth, you know, when you're talking about people's feelings or or how certain business machinations work in the music business, uh, there, there's a lot of shades of gray there. But but I think for the most part, the the the, the big factual stuff is, is is accurate there, even if it was a question of <laughs> a bunch of people having a bunch of different versions of the right. same thing. Now, how do you uh, go and bring up a subject like, you know, the. Uh death of Bob Stinson. Do you talk about that? And, and sure. it's, it's, I mean, it's gotta be hard because, you know, it's like anything, they're a band, you know, they're, and, and you said, you know, the thing is when these bands have, are, you know, are trouble and they're hard, you know, they're hard to deal with and they're different. They also have that, that bond, I think, you know, I think that's one thing, even though how crazy they are, they pretty much love each other. How do you, how do you, and I know it was years ago when he passed away, but you figure you started this book a while back, so it wasn't that much. I think he died in 95. How do you sit there and go talk about that and bring it up? And how do you sit there and say, this is how it should be included in the book? Well, you know, that's, uh, that was kind of the elephant in the room. It really actually wasn't an elephant in the room. It, you know, that Bob's death at age 35 in 1995 really is kind of the, the tragic heart of the replacement story. Uh, and for me, from the outset, one of the things I really wanted to do, as I mentioned, was to kind of render the band's story, but especially Bob's story, uh, as, as, a, as a full, complete thing. Because he's the one, I think, in a way, because he was so much larger than life, the way he played, the way he lived, the way he dressed, you know, coming on stage in dresses or diapers or whatever it was, uh, he's always seen as this outsized comic, uh, almost clown-like figure uh, who was really gifted and really sweet, but had this tragic side that no one really knew, and, and it obviously ended up in his in his really premature passing. And so, from so I think everybody knew that that was going to weigh heavily in in, in the story, and and it was always on people's minds, and particularly uh, Tommy Stinson, who's his, who's his brother, half brother, and 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 really the one who you know uh, Bob grabbed him and put him in the group at the age of 11 and 12 and so you know the, I think everybody knew going in that, that Bob's story was going to be a big part of this um, and for me I think it was always about proceeding um, with a matter of respect 
but also getting to the truth of things. I, you know, one of the first things I did is, you know, for many years as a teenager, you know, basically Bob had been through a, a number of different kind of uh, abuses in his childhood, sexual, physical, uh, emotional, at the hands of his uh, effectively his stepfather. And he started acting out as a teenager and ended up in the state. You there? And things like that. And, um, and so I figured there must be some record of this period where he was away from his family and on his own, you know, in, in the state system. And just a total shot in the dark I sent out for, for the records uh, because he had passed and, and it had been long enough that the, the records would be unsealed. And, and I didn't know that there would be anything more than maybe a page or two, but I came back, uh, you know, uh, with, with 100 or 200 pages of documents really detailing his time and his years away and his, what was going on with him. And, and that's kind of the lost period of his life. And so I started with this incredible um, insight into his uh, young life as he was really trying to kind of recover and find himself again. Uh, and, and a lot of how he did that was through music, through practicing the guitar, and, and it's all in these reports, and, and finding an ambition in terms of wanting to start a rock and roll band, which eventually he did get out and, and, and started, which became The Replacements. And so, you know, I had the advantage of this kind of paper trail of his of his life, and particularly an important part of his of his of his early life. And then I would talk with his family, with his sisters, his mothers, uh, his brother. And you know, I won't lie; that was in many instances very difficult and very painful. And it took a, I think it took a while. Um, again, why maybe the book took so long was it, it took years of going back, uh, not just once or twice, but three or four times and building a relationship with these people to get them to the point where they felt they could open up about um, their their brother or their son that they had lost. And, um, and you know, there's a, lot of, uh, there's a lot of deep and powerful emotions. And in many cases, you know, I was talking to, to, to the family about things that they hadn't even really discussed among themselves when it came to Bob and the things that had happened in his life. And so, you know, that's a really profound uh, thing to bear witness to and be a part of and to have to ultimately write about. So it was a, it was a huge um, responsibility for me and, and something that I, I wanted to take great care with. And, and I think, again, like everything else, the way I managed to do that was just to put in the time and the work and, 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 and build the build the trust that had to be there for them to really talk as openly and freely as they did, and, and which I think is the thing that's resulted in, in the book being compelling, if it is. Now, after year two, what does your publisher start saying to you? Because they're thinking, <laughs> well, I mean, how do they act? Because they think, oh, yeah, it's supposed to be done in uh, two years. How do they act? And do they sit there and do they tell you to try to make it speed up the process or what happens? Well, I, I think, you know, again, I'd rather be lucky than good. And I was very lucky in that my publisher, DeCapo, and my editor, Ben Schaefer, were, uh, you know, just exceedingly patient. I won't say they weren't, you know, they didn't get itchy after a while, especially as the delays continued. But, you know, I think they understood that um, uh, that I was doing, uh, you know, it sounds self-serving to say important work, but that this was more than just a story of a rock and roll band, that there was something deeper here that I was trying to get to. And to do that, I needed that extra time. And, uh, and again, you know, I, there was probably at various points a lot of pressure on Ben, my editor, to, to sort of, uh, you know, to, to get the book out of me or, or, or maybe even to sort of uh, part ways, but he stuck with me. And so, you know, it's good to have... Uh, people who have faith in you and get to have allies. And then, you know, at a certain point, you know, when I produced the first draft or, or, or a portion of the book, I think people saw, okay, well, maybe there's there's something, you know, worthwhile here and, and, and we're willing to wait until it, it's uh, the book is ready. So, um, you know, it's, 
I had to do a little bit of a uh, little bit of smooth talking to get the <laughs> extension after extension, and my agent too, Aaron Hosier, who was who was fantastic and sort of guiding a, a first time author who was probably uh, more difficult than than was worth uh, uh, at times uh, through the process. And so it's it's good to have good people in your corner, particularly those who, who kind of believe in your vision. And I think you know, as it went along, and uh, um, they realized, you know, that that, that this was going to be a, a a book of some substance beyond just the rock and roll storytelling aspect. I think they they felt like uh, it, it was worth putting themselves on the line, and that's why, probably more than anything, I'm really gratified that the book has done so well. We're in our sixth printing. It was a New York Times bestseller. Uh, the celebrities bestseller list the first month it was out and, and it's gotten really good press and I, I'm, I'm glad more for, for my editor and my agent than I am for myself because it sort of uh, shows that their faith wasn't unwarranted now as you say it was your first book but you had written a lot of articles and, and different essays and stuff like that which are a quicker right I mean that's just they're shorter it's not a sure. book it's a thing what, did you at any point and at what point would it be did you ever start getting frustrated and also thinking what the hell did I get myself into and am I ever going to be able to finish this the way I want it to be finished oh sure I, you know I think in some ways it, it, when you look at what this book became now I didn't know in the outset it, the scope was going to be so grand that the 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 um, that the emotional baggage was going to be so heavy in telling the story uh, you know, if I'd have known that, I, I probably wouldn't have shied away from it because I also knew this was an, an incredible opportunity to tell a really important story um, about a band that I loved and that a lot of people love. But certainly, I, I, I won't say I bit off more than I can chew, but I got a mouthful <laughs> over right. the years in terms of, 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 of what, you know, I was trying to do. And, you know, in those moments, of course, you have doubt. And, you know, part of the way you can avoid the doubt of, of can I write this book is you keep researching it. You know, I think a lot of writers... A lot of authors sometimes they uh, they prolong the research process so they don't have to get to the writing process. You know, um, it's a kind of a psychological way of, of, of avoidance. But um, you know, there did come a point, interestingly enough, that the first thing I actually wrote for the book was somewhere towards the middle end was a chapter about them recording their uh, what was supposed to be their major label breakthrough album uh, in 1988 and it was about a uh, they, they actually made the record twice and the first time they tried to make it they made it up in a studio called Bearsville in upstate New York and this was a kind of uh, a, a, a story or a, or a period in the band's history that nobody really knows about because uh, you know the, the, none of the music really ever came out but one or two tracks and much later and and so it's this kind of hidden or, or lost chapter in their story and I thought okay if I can sit down and write this chapter this, this specific you know, a uh, chapter about this two-week period they spent in Bearsville, which is kind of at the height of their craziness and, the, and of their conflict internally within the band, that, you know, then I can write this book. And, uh, you know, I, I, I looked at a, at a blank page for a long time before I, I was able to do it, but having done that chapter and, and, and kind of got over that, 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 that psychological hump or whatever it was, um, then I kind of was able to do, do the book and, and go back into it. So, yeah, I think there's a, you know, now... Oh, writing the next book, I don't think I'd have that problem. But there, there's a there's a kind of uh, point where you have to sort of uh, fish or cut bait, or you know, and you kind of test your metal. And, and that was it for me. And and fortunately, I, I I wasn't dissuaded. There was moments of doubt certainly within that. But once I did that, everything else was like, uh, you know, came along pretty smoothly. Although you know, I wouldn't say easily, but but I, I was determined at that point to to see the thing through. Uh, and you know, it's one of those things that. Uh, 
as a writer and relatively you know young person. I, mean, I was still in my thirties for the most part when I looked, wrote this book. When I got about two thirds of the way through and I was still you know wrestling with it, you start having these thoughts that you never do as someone in your thirty. You think, well, what if I die in a car accident? Who would finish this book? And who, who's going to know? You know where this material is to, to carry it on. I've done the, you know, the kind of crazy thoughts. But but when you've invested five six years of your life in something at that point, and, and it's precious to you, and, and you feel like it's important, then then you start having these these thoughts. So uh, so yeah, I mean, plenty of doubt throughout the process, and plenty of fear. But you know, if you, I don't think if you have that, you you wouldn't be human, really. Now, it's a very big task you have taken on. How are you not getting so immersed in it? How do you keep writing for your day job? Because you, you were writing other things at the time. Sure. How do you learn to multitask? Because the fact is, it's, it was such a big part of your life, the book. Yeah. And as you figure, you know, it was, if you break it down, it was like it's been one sixth or one seventh of yeah. your life, you yeah. know? How how did you keep with your day job, and what was your day job as you were doing this? And when did you find the time to write this book and do the interviews? Well, my day job uh, was and is, and, and really, it's kind of my my. I've been at the Commercial Appeal, which is the daily newspaper in Memphis. We originally were a Scripps newspaper, and then JMG, and most recently, we've become part of the Gannett and USA Today Network uh, just this year. So, you know, I've been at this job. It'll actually be ten years uh, come uh, come. Uh, uh, November 1st and um, and really the, I was probably about nine months into this job uh, when I had my first meetings and discussions with the replacement so my whole career here at this paper has kind of been paralleled by my work on the book um, and so it's kind of been part and parcel of that I think it's easier to balance you know the duties of a day job and in my case I, I write I write about music almost exclusively, music and the music business uh, and here in Memphis you know we have a, a pretty strong uh, heritage tourism music business uh, with Graceland and the Stax Museum and Sun Studios and things like that as well as the as covering you know touring acts coming through concert reviews uh, feature profiles that kind of thing um, so I was able to balance that a little easier certainly during the research process because research isn't as time-consuming doing interviews and kind of going at your own pace in, in terms of the research um, when it came to actually writing the book it was something that I did have to juggle you know nights and weekends and then eventually I took a couple of um, relatively short sabbaticals, you know, two-week, three-week vacations to be able to concentrate in a, in a, in a, in a single block on, on writing. But, you know, I chipped away at it, and sometimes you're inspired, and, and you plow through, uh, you know, uh, two, three days of really intense work, and then sometimes uh, you just do a little bit at a time, you know, 20 minutes a night, 30 minutes a night. So there was no really sort of set schedule or set way for me to do it, except, you know, certainly as the deadline for the book passed and, and, and the pressure ratcheted up, I, I felt kind of compelled to use every free moment, every opportunity to, to, uh, to, to work on the book. And, and I think it, in some ways the long gestation period for the book allowed me to um, really have a good perspective as I was going. If I had written it all in, you know, say I didn't have a, a day job and, and I was able to take three months and write the book all in that three-month burst, um, you know, it might have been a different kind of book and maybe not as good, but I think the fact that I was kind of nursing it along in a sense uh, gave me the ability to kind of step back from it at times, see what I was doing, and uh, reframe my approach, uh, redo things in a way that I wouldn't have if I had just kind of blasted through it in 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 one chunk. So you know, I think there's some advantages to working that way, uh, even though mine was by necessity, out of, out of necessity. Now, what point in the in your this long 
uh, history of writing this book. At what point did you sit there, and I'm wondering if there was just like a defining moment or defining point where you said, okay, man, I'm on the freaking home stretch now. Uh, was there a certain point where you said, I'm, I'm, <laughs> and not because there's a deadline, but just mentally did you say, or did you see it even before that going, okay, you know what, I got to kick this out. I mean, how did you know when you were well, almost done? You know, doing a book, certainly a book like this, um, it's, it is always a question of stages. You know, there's the research, there's the kind of pre-writing process where you kind of put together your outline. At least, you know, this is how I, I work. You put together your outline and kind of fill in your information. And then you sort of start writing and then you start rewriting and then you kind of uh, go back and add stuff because in the, in the writing or the early stages of a first edit, you know, there'll be questions and you have to go back to some sources and people to kind of fill in the blanks or, extra, or you know, add to, or, to certain things. Um, so it's always this question of stages right down to when you get your, you know, the, the, the proofs of the book back and the indexing and, and, and uh, all that stuff. And somewhere in between there, I guess, um, in the latter stages when I had a kind of first complete draft, you know, start to finish, including everything um, except for a kind of epilogue, which because the band was really uh, had was doing their reunion almost up until the point where I was done with the book. Uh, at least the kind of uh, uh, editing process. Um, you know, there was a point where I had something I felt was like close enough to a finished book that I sent it out to a couple of people or trusted readers and, and friends and fellow writers and, and, and got feedback from them. And, and so that was maybe what I thought was kind of the home stretch. But being the sort of uh, nervous Nelly that I am, I thought, well, this is the point actually where you have to be the most vigilant is that home stretch and you can't feel safe and secure and and feeling like you're almost done because that's you know that's really when some of the most important fine tuning and tweaking can go on it might be very small things but uh that's you know so for me i i don't think i was ever uh ever really felt like i was in the home stretch until i got the bound books and even then you know you notice the little things there and a couple of errors that you have to correct for the reprinting or the paperback so it's, uh, you know, somehow it never ends. I think maybe somewhere in the middle of my book tour this summer after it had been out and we'd s sold books and had gotten reviews, I thought, okay, well, now I can right. I can rest a little bit. But, you know, now, then by that point, then you're thinking about the, the tweaks or changes for the paperback and and and, and we they're going to do an audio book. So it's a, I guess it's a never-ending process is what I'm saying. Now, at what point did the band see the book and were they did you did they at any time throughout it want to look at it and get a chance to look at it or was it hush hush for them until the end how uh, did that work and what was their re response when they finally got to look at it my only yeah i mean my my sort of deal with the band was that the you know you don't have veto power but um in one instance and that was to do with the stinson family specifically his uh, uh tommy and bob's sister i um I did say because you know she was also kind of unfortunately victim of some of the same abuse that her brother suffered, and you know she's not part of the band. She didn't really sign up for this, and so I did say, uh, as regards to the early portion that dealt with her, that I would that I would like her to kind of read that to make sure that it's accurate and respectful. And you know that was a kind of unusual circumstance just because it's such a you know personal and painful thing, and 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 she was so generous in terms of being open and honest about things. I wanted to make sure absolutely that I got all that right. So, um, you know, so there was a couple people who were sort of tangentially involved or, or directly involved in the book who did see it prior to publication. Um, I did send a galley version to Paul. You know, once it had been kind of printed in galley form, 
uh, because he was, uh, you know, both of both Tommy and Paul said, oh, I don't want to read it out, you know, I, I'm not worried about it. Um, and then, of course, Paul at the last minute decided that he did, <laughs> but, um, and, uh, and he read it, and, uh, you know, I think for him it was, quite honestly, a really strange experience to have, you know, I, I FedExed the book to him, and he got it at 8 in the morning, and, you know, about 3 in the morning I'm getting a call from him <laughs> that same night, so, you know, and, 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 and I think, you know, imagine you're sitting at home, and so the delivery guy comes in and takes this, drops this book off, and here, there's your life, and, you know, intimate detail, and some of the, you know, most of it covering your 20s, uh, and kind of this forensic detail about your life and all these people talking about you. I think that would, and, and, and maybe causing you to remember things you'd forgotten or, or, or didn't even know happened. And so I think from that perspective, uh, being the subject of a biography, certainly as detailed as this would be, you know, kind of a, 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 a trip for anybody. And it certainly, I think it was for Paul. Um, Tommy, I think, maybe read or has read the first part having to do with the early years and the family stuff. And he, he said he was... He was moved by it and, and was okay with it. And, but I don't think, you know, in both cases of the people in the band, it's like they lived this stuff once. They lived, relived it with me and in, in kind of recounting it and the interviews for the book. I'm not sure that they need to sort of go back and live it again a third time, you know. So, um, But I think in Paul's case he did. In Tommy's case he probably hasn't. But, you know, the response was good, and I think they have been probably heartened by the public response which has been you know really overwhelming and wonderful that people are liking the book and feeling moved by the story and 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 maybe appreciating the band more um i think all that is is, is kind of uh, a sage as any weird feelings they might have had about the process or, or the finished result that they feel hey like you know this is the book that we deserve it's worthy of our legacy and and um and it's 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 something that you know hopefully will stand the test of time now, when it finally comes out, you know, you have this, it's done. I just said you still went through thinking, we got to tweak this, tweak this for the next paperback and stuff like that. Sure. You have that sigh of relief, but then you <laughs> got to wait to see what the critics think. And are you, are you thinking maybe, you know, are music critics, you know, who read it, who are book critics going to be tough on you? Because like they always say, you know, like playwrights are always the toughest on playwrights because they're all snobs. You know, they're like, oh, that thing sucks. Sure. But was it sitting there, what were you thinking about when you were getting the reviews and what were some of the first reviews you got and how did they make you feel? Well, I think uh, on one level, I was, I, I felt like the there's a deep affection for this band, for the replacements, and, and there always has been, and they've continued to be discovered by successive generations, and particularly of music writers. So I knew I, going in, I had a uh, a good advantage or there in terms of you know people really love this band. Now, of course, that can work both ways. If they don't like the book and they love the band, then they can be really mad at you. <laughs> but um, but so going in, and and also the band itself having reunited in 2013 and done a couple of. Uh, uh, a couple years worth of touring and really kind of galvanized, I think, the fan base and just reminded people of, of, of how great they were. And, and people were sort of excited about the replacements. Uh, you know, there was a sort of excitement in the air about them. So, so in that sense, the book was coming out at a very good time and, and, and coming out to a, a good and expectant audience, I think. But, of course, you're, as someone particularly in my case who devoted so much time to this book uh, and so many years of my life, I had a lot invested in it, maybe more than some people who write books, and it being my first book, and, you know, all those things. So, of course, you're, you're worried uh, about what the response is going to be. You know, I did feel like, though, as someone who was, uh, would otherwise be a part of uh, the ideal audience for this book, 
as you know, as a fan and someone who's loved this band for so long, I'm kind of the target demographic. And as I was researching the book and writing it, and knowing what you know kind of information existed out there about the band, it was I would even be reading the book and and discovering things that I had written and thinking, man, if this can just get out in the world, if I can someone someday just finish this book, people are really going to dig it because it, it really it's just a lot of new and fascinating information if you're a fan. So I, I guess that's a sort of weird way of saying I did feel like confident in some sense that at least the, the, the hardcore fans and music fans were really going to love the book because I think it does, uh, you know, it, 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 it's kind of everything you would want to know about the replacements if you were a fan. But of course my bigger hope was that, that people outside of the group's fan base or outside of music fans would connect with it. And, uh, you know, fortunately that was the case. I think the first, you know, the first things that uh, we I heard about were, of course, the, the publishing industry reviews. It got a starred review from Books List. It got a nice write-up in Publishers Weekly. Um, then I think Vanity Fair included it in their hot type um, thing, which was a big deal. And, and, you know, part of the thing about the replacements is they're, they're popular in a sense, but they're not super mainstream. So I, I didn't know in terms of mainstream media how much coverage we would get or if it would just be limited to, to music stuff. But very quickly I realized, you know, this is a this is a thing that's going to have a lot of appeal, and I think, you know, to whatever extent, it's a good book. You know, it's solidly researched, so people, it's something people can dig into. And, and so the response was great from that. We had really nice write-ups and, you know, got a full-page review in Rolling Stone um, and, and, you know, Chicago Tribune, LA Times. I mean, the press really kind of turned snowballed and it turned into this uh, uh, almost like this avalanche of, of you know, praise for the book, but also uh, touching a lot of people who came up loving this band. And so I think it was an opportunity for, for people to really express uh, how much they'd loved and thought about this band, too. And so, yeah, the response has been great. And, um, you know, also the people who read it, uh, fellow authors, were really into what I had done and said, hey, you know, this is a good book. So I, I think I was cautiously optimistic, and, and pretty soon that, that optimism turned to <laughs> turned to relief when I saw it was going to do okay. But, you know, I, I take none of it for granted. I, I, I may write another 20 books, and none of them might be, none of them will probably be as well-reviewed or, or, or as, uh, as uh, widely accepted and, and, and sell as well as this. So I'm, I'm enjoying the fact that, you know, the first time out, I've, I've, I've kind of had a little bit of a hit, and uh, and, but I'm not taking that for granted that it'll ever happen again, so I'm, <laughs> I'm enjoying it. Now, how'd you come up with the title? And was that your original title, or when did you, into the process, did you figure out that title? That was an original title. Peter Jesperson, the band's manager and kind of resident archivist and someone who was really central and key in kind of getting the book off the ground, and of course he's interviewed extensively throughout. Um, at one point, back in the late 90s, um, they were talking about doing a, a replacements box set of rarities and live material and stuff. And one of the titles they had in mind was Trouble Boys. And where that comes from, it's actually not a replacement song, but rather a uh, song written by a guy named Billy Bremer, who was in Rock Pile with Nick Lowe and Dave Edmonds. They were kind of a late 70s roots rock band from England. And um, it was, the song itself was a song that the replacements covered very early on. They would do in some of their earliest shows. And as I recount in the book, there was a period in their in their the first few times they got together where they were kind of figuring out their sound and where they really coalesced and where the everything kind of clicked was during a rendition of, of Trouble Boys. And so, you know, I thought it, it kind of represented this this flashpoint, this touchstone moment for the band. Um, but also it has a dual meaning as you read the book. You'll also realize the replacements were Trouble, 
<laughs> they were very young when they started the band, so they were boys, and they also were trouble throughout the course of their career. So kind of had a double meaning. Uh, and, uh, you know, I don't know, I just... I, I felt like naming it after one of their songs. You're kind of limited, and and maybe that's a little too on the nose. But it just seemed like this was a great title that said something about the band and said something about the experience of the band forming, and and also kind of uh, their reputation as well. So it seemed like a perfect title. But yeah, that's it was the original title. I think our subtitle changed. Originally, it was uh, going to be called "The True Adventures of the Replacements," which was kind of a nod to Stanley Booth's book, uh, uh, "The True Adventures of the Rolling Stones." Um, but um, but uh, I don't know. We decided to change that and just just go with the true story of the replacements. And but uh, so so the subtitle changed. But the book was always going to be titled Trouble Boys. So since it's been a success, and you know, and you love music, do you have any upcoming? Are you are you working on a new book now? I'm I'm at that point where you know that's the, that's the question that everybody asks, including my agent and my publisher. You know what's next? What do you want to do next? I'm, I'm fortunate to be in a position, obviously, where that's the case, where people are want to see something else from me, and, and in part because the book was has been well reviewed and, and it sold well. So um, I'm at the point now. You know, the book came out in March, which meant we were sort of setting it up starting last December. It came out in March, was doing press all through the spring and into the summer, and then doing book tour for much of the spring and summer as well. So it's really only been about a month or a month and a half that I've had to kind of uh, uh, not think about it and, and, and or at least be sort of free from, from the day-to-day obligations of, of, of the book and the book tour. Um, so I'm just kind of in the early stages of, of, of figuring out what the next project might be, and uh, they're all a little too premature to, to, to discuss. But, but yeah, I'm definitely kind of looking to the next project um, uh, even as we set up, you know, like I say, the paperback and audiobook are going to be out next June, and so we have to kind of, you know, finalize that sort of stuff. So I'm still kind of in in replacements world for a little bit, but I'm going to take the next couple months to really figure out what I want to do next. And you know, I certainly hope, and my plan is for the next book not to take as long um, <laughs> as this one did, uh, mainly because uh, uh, you know I think I I know what to do. All the first time author things that that might have eaten up a lot of time. I think you know I'm, I'm more experienced now, and I know more. You know, streamlined way to, to, to do the book, but um, even if that's not the case, I, I want to make sure whatever book or project I'm choosing is something that's gonna it's gonna hold my interest. And frankly, you know, the next project has a lot to measure up to because you know I was a fan of the band. Uh, I love the replacements. The story was deeply intriguing on a number of levels, and 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 stayed interesting to me throughout those six, seven, eight years of working on it. So I think that's the most important thing. Uh, when you're picking a project, and, and, and somebody gave me good advice many years ago, he said, you know, whatever subject you're going to write about, make sure you're going to be interested in it all the way through, because there's nothing worse than reading a book by an author who you can tell his interest in the subject wanes about halfway through or two-thirds of the way through. So um, I'm still, like I say, just figuring out what that next process uh, or project will be, but uh, you know, like I say, it's got a lot to live up to in terms of, of, of uh, matching this replacement story, both in terms of you know, personally for me and in terms of what this book has done. Now, do you feel a little bit now that you're just, the, the book tour is done, you got this through that, but you're not really writing it. Do you feel like there's a little hole in your life now? Like you lost a little part of you because the book's done and for seven years you were writing yeah. it. Yeah. I mean, what's that like? I mean, how do you deal with that? It's 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 interesting. You know, I've, I've had a couple of moments like that, but I've mostly up until, as I say, the last few weeks been so busy, I haven't had too much time to feel those pangs and certainly there's a lot of life to catch up on too now for me I, in the process of you know I, I finished the book um, 
basically handed the proofs in last December and got married a couple weeks after. Uh, so, you know, I've, 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 I'm a newlywed, relatively speaking, and, and so I'm kind of uh, enjoying that part of my life. So, you know, there's plenty for me to, to fill the hole that's uh, left behind without having a replacements book to write. But, but yeah, you know, it's, it's, I, I still find myself thinking about the book and promoting it in small ways and social media and, and fielding questions about it and, and various kinds of things. So it hasn't really left me, but... But the work has, um, you know, the day-to-day -day grind and, and the deadline hanging over me, which I don't mind not having that that in my life. But, uh, but yeah, you know, I, I, I and quite frankly, there's um, there's a couple projects that we're discussing that are sort of offshoots of the book in terms of a documentary film and and some um, work with the band's recorded catalog, archival stuff that that I'm involved in, and so so that's kind of filling that that replacements hole. That you know, my life is still. Uh, in many ways, being consumed by the replacements. Well, that's awesome, man. I, I'm, I'm glad I got in touch with you. It's so funny. Uh, my friend Stu, who I went to college with, always sends me tweets and texts and always suggests people that could be guests. And, and I mean, like I said, I have, the only authors I've had was, you know, Dave, David Wilde, who writes, you know, uh, sure. and Jerry Stahl. And, right. um, but yeah, I was like, all right, because I'm a big replacements fan. So he told me, you got to contact him. And it was great because I, I tweeted you out and, uh, you know, Twitter, as I always say, Twitter's sort of hit or miss with guests, you know, because a lot of times I go through Facebook, I saw a deal with PR agency, you know, the whole process. I mean, I'm sure, sure. you dealt with it. But it's great. Now, now, give all your info, give your, your social sure. media, give the, the book. I'm, I'm on the website right now. Give the website. Just give all the details you can give to Sure. People. Well, uh, yeah, anybody who wants to find out about the book, buy the book or anything like that, all that stuff is at replacementsbook.com. Uh, replacementsbook.com and uh, you know there's also a list of dates there I, I, right now I don't have anything booked but you know we're going to do another round of, of uh, touring when the paperback comes out next summer and you know the replacements.com is a good place to look for updates and things like that in terms of the other related projects hopefully that we'll be announcing in the next few months um, I'm on at Twitter at Bob Mayer that's B-O-B-M-E-H-R and uh, you know I, I talk about and tweet out a lot of stuff about the replacements you know cool photos and, and links and things like that so uh, you know replacements fans can check it check it out there and uh, and of course there's you know Amazon Barnes and Noble all that stuff the book's available there but you know that that stuff's on the website too so um, yeah you can they can check it out at replacementsbook.com mainly and we we can find your uh, your column or your writings at the commercial commercialappeal.com uh, like I say it's a USA Today network newspaper and uh, you know write a lot about Memphis music but national stuff too and also I'm a, a US contributor for Mojo Magazine in the UK which is one of the great music magazines in the world uh, does a lot of stuff uh, in fact there's a, the most recent issue has a kind of a condensed feature about the replacements that I wrote for them and uh, you know that's on newsstands pretty much everywhere and so yeah so they can check, it, check all those things out Mojo Commercial Appeal and replacementsbook.com and Wow, people, that's just crazy. He just uh, he just cut out. Isn't that funny? He's uh, he's calling right now. This is so funny. Wait, is this working? Let's see. He cut out. Anyway, people, follow follow Bob. Uh, follow me at Cooper Talk. That's amazing. Cut out with like a minute and a half left when I do my stuff. Anyway, follow me at Cooper Talk. That's at Cooper Talk. Uh, you can go to my website coopertalk.net where I have a bunch of episodes up. It's uh. 560 almost. Uh, email me, Cooper, at coopertalk.net. Play me with words or friends. And Instagram, you can follow me at coopertalk1. And don't forget my book, Stop the Salt. That's stopthesalt.com. And go buy it. It's 120 easy-to-cook recipes. Low sodium. No pictures to imitate, intim intimidate you. 
No big list of ingredients. It's all great. You can buy it at Barnes & Noble. Or you can buy it on Amazon. Or you can buy it at StopTheSalt.com and get it for free. Or you can go buy the replacements book and unbuy mine and you have a good day. So yeah, peace, peace. And if you don't listen to replacements, check them out. They're a great band. And so please follow them at Bob Mayer, B-O-B-M-E-H-R. Follow me on Twitter at CooperTalk. Check out my website, coopertalk.net. And uh, that's about it. I'm not going to be, if you're on Facebook, you follow me. It's Steve Cooper. And I'm not going to be tweeting anything uh, about any presidents or anything right now or the election. So anyway, I'm Steve Cooper. I'm only as hip as my guest. Don't forget, drink your water, eat your vegetables, take your vitamins, and I will talk to you guys next week and have a wonderful weekend. <laughs>